Welcome to El Petróleo es Nuestro, Episode 6, Managing Abundance. I'm Brandon Seal. In the previous episode, I really struggled to hold together a coherent narrative. I jumped from development drilling to petrochemicals to the oil workers union to a muddled critique of other people's critiques of Pemex. But it's because the 1960s are a confusing period in Mexico's oil history. They precede the glorious 1970s, when production would increase fivefold, and, for the first time since the 1920s, Mexico would return to the ranks of the great world oil powers. So it's tempting to want to find in the 60s the antecedents to the successes of the 70s. But standing where we stand today, we also know where the story of Pemex goes after the 1970s. And it's just as easy to see in the 60s the seeds of the problems that would bear their ill fruit 30 years later. All of which makes for a mixed narrative, and I don't apologize for that. Mexican history just is messy. It doesn't lend itself to the kind of clean, moralistic narratives that we Americans like. But we can set all that aside for the moment, because the story of oil in Mexico in the 1970s is about gushers and growth, the kind of stories all students of oil history really like to read. Recapping, in the 1960s, Pemex had begun investing heavily in exploration and training in-country personnel in an attempt to move away from reliance on foreign experts and technologies. But it also entered the world of international finance, struggled to meet the demands of the oil workers union, and began to suffer from the burden of subsidies that it was required to provide to the nation. By the end of Antonio Dovali Jaime's directorship in 1976, something had to give. Pemex's reserves to production ratio, i.e., how long it would take Pemex to deplete her known resources at then current rates of production, had fallen to 18 years in 1970 and 14 years by 1975. In 1971, she had to begin importing crude to keep up with domestic gasoline consumption that was growing at 7% per year. And in 1973, Pemex began to lose money again with no real prospect of reversing that trend. Of course, Pemex's losses were always just a decision by the government to push national deficits onto the oil company. Pemex was fantastically profitable on a pre-tax, pre-subsidy basis. For various reasons, the government preferred to issue subsidy refunds, as they were called, effectively round-tripping pesos that had been taxed out of Pemex back into her budget. But throughout the 50s and 60s, the Mexican government fiercely resisted what would have been the other easy fix to Pemex's losses, namely raising retail prices on hydrocarbons. Low and stable retail prices for hydrocarbons was effectively state policy, where stable prices for hydrocarbons helped offset an otherwise unstable currency and subsidize the Mexican miracle of an average 6.2% annual growth rate in the Mexican economy over the period of 1957 to 1977, 8% year-over-year in the manufacturing sector. When the Mexican government proposed retail price increases in 1973, they were fiercely opposed by both left-wing populists and the right-wing PAN party, the left-wing accusing the government of raising money on the backs of Mexico's poor, and the right-wing accusing the government of raising money to enrich politicians and unions at the expense of Mexican industry. And they were both right. But it shows the range of constituencies that Pemex was expected to subsidize over the years. But by 1973, Pemex could no longer afford the magnitude of the subsidies that they were asked to provide. Because remember what else is going on in 1973. The Arab oil embargo. From 1957 to 1973, the average West Texas intermediate crude price had risen from about $3 a barrel to $4.31 a barrel, 
a period of striking stability and modest growth, the kind that lends itself to good planning, as we talked about in the previous episode. But by 1974, West Texas Intermediate was over $11. This increase rippled throughout the oil industry and the international economy, and the Mexican government had to act. In exchange for allowing Pemex to raise retail prices to closer to international norms, however, the government levied even more taxes on Pemex, reaching over 90% of profits by 1979 and staying in that range for the next 30 years. So in the end, it's questionable how much benefit Pemex really realized from these increased retail prices. For one, it still required a literal act of Congress for Pemex to get these increases in future years, even as they would become more frequent. Second, and more importantly, however, what 1973 really marked was a shift from using Pemex to maintain artificially low and stable prices for hydrocarbons in domestic markets to using Pemex to generate revenue for the state. Because around 1973, Pemex's production began to take off. In 1974, national production would finally bust its pre-expropriation peak of 555,000 barrels per day. I will only pause briefly here to highlight the point that it took 53 years for Mexican production to recover from its revolutionary levels to help illustrate the true extent of the trauma of the Mexican Revolution on the Mexican economy. Pemex's unparalleled run of success in the 1970s started in 1972 with the Sitio Grande Número Uno Discovery Well, which found oil at 13,370 feet in Tabasco State. Shortly thereafter, the Cactus Number 1 well came in at 12,336 feet and confirmed the true extent of the Reforma Complex, as it would be called, in Tabasco and Chiapas states. Initial production rates averaged three to 5,000 barrels per day, with some as high as 20,000 barrels per day. These numbers don't sound as impressive as Doheny and Pearson's gushers, but remember, those early gushers were horrible examples of a lack of well-control technology. These discovery wells in the 1970s were controlled, repeatable, geologic successes. Pay zones averaged 1,000 feet, with wells in the Sitio Grande field producing from almost 3,000 feet of pay. Again, for context, I was just part of a nice little well in Webb County, Texas that should pay out in about a year, producing from about 30 feet of pay. And it gets even more mind-blowing. Thanks to heavy microfracturing, permeability in these Reforma complex wells was as high as 8,000 millidarcies. That is millions of times more permeable than the best Eagleford shale here in South Texas. By 1981, 185 wells would be producing in the Reforma complex, producing about 1 million barrels of high-gravity, mostly 35 to 40 degree crude, almost double Mexico's entire national production five years earlier not to mention almost all of Mexico's 2 BCF a day of natural gas production. And this decade is just getting started. Natural gas development took off in earnest in the north as well, particularly in the northern Burgos Basin. Seven wells drilled near Nuevo Laredo in the early 1970s were soon producing 150 million cubic feet per day between them, in the beginning of what would be a mini-boom in the Lobo and Navarro formations, mirroring what was happening in South Texas around the same time. Wells drilled in the Sabinas Basin in the middle of the 1970s near Monclova, Coahuila, averaged 8 million cubic feet per day initial production rates, helping fuel the Mexican industrial heartland from Monclova to Monterey to Torreon. In 1978, Pemex announced the discovery of the heavy oil Chicontepec field, and although 30 years later its dubious potential has yet to be realized, it has sat on Pemex's balance sheet for most of that time as 5 to 15 billion barrels of reserves, many times greater than those of the Reforma complex. To the extent, then, that Pemex has been able to borrow against it for the entire time that it's been on the reserve report, 
Chicontepec may have produced more cash per dollar invested than any of the great fields on this list. But the real story we're all waiting for starts back in 1958, when a local fisherman in the Bay of Campeche named Rudecindo Cantarel showed up at a local Pemex gas station to complain about his nets getting gunked up by oil in a particular spot in the Campeche Sound. He assumed it was a leaking Pemex pipeline or vessel, and, with charming fisherman naivete, took his complaint to the nearest building that had Pemex written on it, not appreciating that the guys who pumped his gasoline probably had little connection to Pemex's offshore production assets. It took until 1965 for his complaint to wind its way through the Pemex hierarchy, and eventually they sent him to the Pemex production office in Coetzacoalcos to meet with an engineer, Javier Meneses. Already irritated at having been put off and passed around for so long, Cantarel angrily dragged his oily nets with him to his first meeting. The skeptical Pemex managers saw his determination and so agreed to indulge him by taking a sample of the oil off his nets to determine where it might be coming from. Confusingly, it came back as 28-degree API crude, unlike anything else that they were producing or transporting in the area. Intrigued, Meneses asked Cantarel to take him out on his boat to show him where his nets had gotten fouled. Cantarel refused. He told them bluntly that he wasn't taking anyone anywhere until they agreed to reimburse him for his nets and for the gas to take them out to sea. They agreed, eventually, and when Ingenieros Serafín Paz and Mario Galván finally accompanied Cantarel out into the Bay of Campeche in 1971, they set in motion events that would lead to the discovery of one of the five largest oil fields ever. In 1979, 53 miles off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in 116 feet of water, the Cantarel 2095 well encountered a 3,200-foot impregnated column of oil at 6,890 feet subsurface. Initial production rates were as high as 50 to 60,000 barrels per day of low-20s gravity crude, with production from the first 40 wells in Cantarel averaging 30,000 barrels per day in 1981, in some cases three years after those wells had been brought online. The Cantarel complex is really an extension of the Reforma complex offshore, so it should come as no surprise that they share many of the same geologic properties. Pay zones 1,000 to 3,000 feet thick, 8 to 10% porosity made highly effective by intense microfracturing, with permeability again reaching as high as 8,000 millidarcies. So prolific has Cantarell been that U.S. Gulf Coast refineries are essentially designed for heavy Cantarell oil. At its peak in 2003, the Cantarell field was producing over 2.1 million barrels per day, second only to Saudi Arabia's supergiant Gawar field. Cantarell has produced almost 14 billion barrels of oil to date, and 5 trillion cubic feet of gas since its discovery. Cantarell's decline since 2003 has been widely touted, but we're not there yet. Because if we jump to that too quickly, we'll skip over the discovery of the Kumalub Zat complex, which has effectively replaced Cantarell's declining volumes. Located some 65 miles offshore, just northwest of Cantarell, in 328 feet of water, the related Ku Malub and Zap fields, or collectively KMZ, were discovered in 1980, 1984, and 1991, respectively. KMZ oil is much heavier than Cantarell oil, averaging 14-degree API, for reference, 10-degree crude sinks in water. The field was left largely undeveloped for its first 20 years. But with Cantarell's decline, KMZ took on renewed importance, and thanks to its ability to leverage much of the infrastructure built out for Cantarell, it has rather seamlessly replaced Cantarell's declining barrels. In 2012, it took over as the most prolific field in Mexico, and today produces more than 800,000 barrels per day.
all three of the great Mexican oil complexes of the 1970s, Reforma, Cantarel, and KMZ, are really related compartments of the same petroleum province, sourced by the same late Jurassic and early Cretaceous source rocks, which are, incidentally, the same age rocks that have sourced most of Texas's Gulf Coast production. While we're playing trivia, here's another fun tidbit. The crater that formed much of the Cantarel complex was created by the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. So although all true oil nerds know that oil isn't really composed of dead dinosaurs, Cantarel might be the best link yet to T-Rex for all the rock lickers out there. But let me tell you what is sad to me about the Cantarel story. That particular version of the discovery of Cantarel Field, I found that on an internet forum. There are other versions of the story out there as well, all playing on the charm of a common man finding an uncommon bounty, making Cantarel out to be a Mexican Jed Clampett. These stories are cute, and they may even be true, but they're largely obscured in Pemex's institutional propaganda. But it's just as well, because they don't really tell us what happened. That is, somewhere along the way of Rudy Cantarel's attempt to get paid back for his fishing nets, some geologists built a cross-section and identified a possible trap. Some engineer figured out how to drill Mexico's first offshore wells and put that production online. And some manager fought to get these wells drilled against some other managers who undoubtedly opposed him. I would love to know more about these stories and these men. There's something to be admired about the anonymity of Pemex's great oil finders. I can't help but think of the anonymity of many of our American military heroes who died serving their country in ways that most of us may never know. But whether they're Mexican geologists or American special forces operatives, all of them deserve to be remembered. And I wish the stories of Cantarel, KMZ, and Reforma were as easy to track down as the earlier stories of Pearson, de Goyler, Ordonez, and Doheny. Because really it's individuals that make the oil field so interesting, not rocks. Perhaps the closest thing to the image of an American-style, larger-than-life oil personality in Mexico is Jorge Diaz Serrano, the Pemex general director during this period, from 1976 to 1981. Diaz Serrano was an engineer by training and made his first million by the age of 25, primarily as a contractor for Pemex. Most fortunes in Mexico were made either by franchising a foreign technology for distribution in Mexico or through government contracts, and Diaz Serrano proved adept at both. He would preside over the greatest period of expansion and success in Pemex's history and would lead the organization during the period of its highest self-confidence and employee morale. In 1980, the organization beat Diaz Serrano's initial production target of 2.25 million barrels per day by two full years, almost tripling the level of production from 1976 when Diaz Serrano took office. Oil exports would go from 15% of Pemex's income in 1976 to 85% by 1982, as nearly all of the new production was destined for foreign markets. Mexico would be the fourth largest oil exporter in the world in 1982. 114 new fields were discovered during Diaz Serrano's tenure, and the Exploration Department achieved a 40% success rate, a rate never before or later matched in Pemex's history. By the time Diaz Serrano left office, he would leave behind a 59-year reserve-to-production ratio. With their exploration success, Pemex was able to invest in midstream and downstream infrastructure. Three new refineries came online between 1981 and 1986, first in Tula to replace the Mexico City refinery, then Catareta near Monterey, and lastly Salina Cruz on the Pacific coast to bring total refining capacity to 1.8 million barrels per day by 1986, where it still stands more or less today. Natural gas production hit 4.1 BCF per day, which again is not that far off from present-day values. 
And from 4,154 miles of total pipeline in 1957, the National Pipeline System hit 26,229 miles in 1983, which, again, is fairly close to the mileage of pipe in service today in Mexico. In the last three years of Diaz Serrano's tenure, Pemex invested over $20 billion in such infrastructure projects. But the most iconic investment of the period was the Pemex Tower in Mexico City, a symbol of Pemex's once boundless confidence and an example of really poor elevator design. If you've ever been in it, you know what I'm talking about. Even the 1978 Ixtac 1 oil spill did little to dampen the mood of the country. Though spilling almost as much oil as BP's famous Macondo blowout in 2010, the Ixtac spill actually revealed to the world how truly enormous and prolific the Cantarel field was going to be. So successful was Jorge Diaz Serrano's tenure at Pemex that he was widely viewed as the most likely candidate to be the next president of Mexico in 1982. But in truth, Pemex's finances were as fragile as ever. 1976 had seen another peso devaluation, further increasing Pemex's dependence on foreign loans to develop their massive new fines in a highly dollar-denominated industry. Pemex's debt-to-equity ratio rose from 1 to 1 in 1973 to almost 3 to 1 by 1982, when it reached $25.2 billion. Pemex came to rely on financing for 30 to 50% of cash inflows in the last three years of Diaz Serrano's directorship. All of this was exacerbated by the Mexican government's increasing realization that Pemex could now access international debt markets almost as cheaply as the government could, and that doing so kept the debt off of the national balance sheet. Soon, Pemex payments constituted almost 40% of government inflows, not counting the $12 billion or so per year in subsidies that Pemex gave the nation by maintaining retail prices at 10 to 70% of U.S. prices for the same product. But if there is one truism about the oil business, it's that it's cyclical. And in 1979, oil prices had peaked. Fears of potential OPEC cuts kept them from collapsing entirely, but by the middle of 1981, worldwide oil prices were down almost $6 per barrel from their 1979 highs. In 1981, OPEC agreed to lower their posted prices in response to market realities. Diaz Serrano was left with very little choice but to do the same. After all, having the highest priced fungible good in the market is a pretty poor sales strategy. And so he lowered the posted price for Mexico's Isthmus crude by $4 a barrel and Maya crude by $2 a barrel. The timing of the move, however, couldn't have been worse. 1981 was the year before a presidential election, and the sexennial ritual of road building, curb repainting, and union pandering needed to be funded. To make matters worse, a few years earlier, Mexican President José López Portillo had famously told the nation that with the great oil fines of the 1970s, the challenge of the nation was now simply to, quote, manage abundance. And worse still, the drop in oil revenues threatened to trigger loan repayments on Pemex and Mexican government loans, magnifying the impact of the price drop. So Lopez Portillo's administration overruled Diaz Serrano. And in fact, they raised prices, $2 a barrel, for both Maya and Isthmus crude, at a time when the rest of the world had just announced they were lowering prices. The results were predictably disastrous and immediate. Pemex temporarily lost almost all of their buyers that weren't committed under long-term contracts, losing almost $1 billion overnight. Further, as a result of a curious 1980 law which limited exports as a percent of Pemex's total sales to any one nation, i.e. targeting the U.S., sales revenues for Pemex were already being hit in 1981 by the resulting need to sell oil to other, more distant markets that were often much closer to cheaper, higher-quality Middle Eastern oil. 
By the end of 1981, Pemex's revenues had fallen from $20 billion to only $14.3 billion, and Jorge Diaz Serrano fell with them. Diaz Serrano stepped down, and by this point, was too damaged by his very public fall from grace to become the 1982 candidate for president. But it was not enough for the next Mexican president that Diaz Serrano had been unceremoniously removed from Pemex. By 1982, the time that the new president took office, Pemex's situation was only worse still than it had been when Diaz Serrano had been removed. His friends in the party and others in the country began to look back longingly at Diaz Serrano's dynamic leadership and results. Fairly or not, the new administration went after Diaz Serrano with guns blazing, and in the first months of the new sexenio in 1982, Diaz Serrano was charged with and convicted of accepting a $34 million bribe for signing an illicit contract while general director of Pemex. He would serve five years in prison for his crime. He remains a controversial figure in Pemex's history, reviled by some as just another rata, sucking off the wealth of the nation, but revered by others as the last great leader that Pemex would have. When he was released from prison, Jorge Diaz Serrano would emerge to the strains of a mariachi band hired by his friends, singing Jose Alfredo Jimenez's El Rey. The lyrics to the song go, With money or without money, I do what I want, and my word is the law. I may not have a throne or queen, and no one really understands me, but I am still the king. Diaz Serrano did not lack for ego. It's also easy to see how he could have actually been corrupt. Maybe he felt like he deserved a little more than his government salary for presiding over the growth of Pemex into one of the largest companies in the world. It would be hard to think of too many other oil company CEOs that have presided over the kind of growth that Diaz Serrano guided. But inasmuch as Diaz Serrano probably gets too much credit for the oil boom, it also strikes me that he was simply a fall guy for the excesses of the Lopez Portillo administration of which he was a part. Ex-presidents rarely get taken down in Mexico, but at least one visible member of their administration often does. If there was a suspicion that an unhealthy portion of the $25 billion in debt on Pemex's balance sheet in 1982 had been squandered corruptly, it was an actual verified fact that much of Mexico's national $90 billion debt had been so squandered. The new president had to respond to the broad national consensus that corruption had gone too far, and so promised a, quote, moral renovation of Mexico. And Diaz Serrano, as a former political rival and former Pemex executive, who had drawn much of the blame for Pemex's falling revenues, was a most convenient target. For better or worse, Diaz Serrano's directorship would leave a lasting impact on Mexico and on Pemex. First, Diaz Serrano would be the last industry man to ever hold the directorship. Future Pemex directors would be political appointees, more responsive to the Mexican president than Diaz Serrano had been when he ignored the president and tried to make a politically unpopular but financially necessary business decision to lower oil prices. And Pemex itself would become fully and directly governed by politicians, who viewed Pemex as too critical to Mexican government finances to be allowed to operate without their control. And the second change following Diaz Serrano's departure is that it would mark the effective end of oil and gas exploration in Mexico for a generation. So much oil had been discovered during the 1970s, and so awash was the world in oil generally in the 1980s, that Pemex really did have little to do but manage their abundance. Their 59-year reserve-to-production ratio almost seemed to demand profligate production practices. What good are 59 years of reserves to a nation if you can't get any value out of them today? But the physical abundance did not extend. But the abundance was physical, not financial. 
Reserves don't mean a damn thing if you aren't solvent long enough to produce them. And they also don't mean a damn thing if you can't produce them at a competitive price. I think that oil nationalists and critics of the oil industry generally operate under a cartoonish version of how the oil field works. Namely, that oil is simply a bounty that exists for someone to extract. For them, the question is simply who will take it out of the ground and be allowed to profit off of it. But unfortunately, the oil business is all about how much it costs to get it out of the ground. This is a difficult concept to grasp, but cost control and ongoing investment in exploration are the keys to running a successful exploration company. After the massive fines of the 1970s and the departure of industry guys like Diaz Serrano, cost control and exploration disappeared from Pemex's vocabulary. Because from 1982 on, every available penny would be needed to deal with an economic crisis. In the next episode, we'll explore Mexico's lost decade and their generation of crisis, and I'll venture dangerously close to some high finance concepts that I really don't understand that well. Eventually, oil prices will collapse again, and things will get bad enough that people will start uttering the R-word, reform. All right, I think we found our stride again with this episode. Thanks again for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. You can also download old episodes at www.brandonseal.com. For this episode's recommended additional material, I'm sending you to YouTube. Look up Jose Agustin's Tragicomedia Mexicana, Mexican Tragicomedy. It's some good stuff. Hasta la próxima.